Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, I'm sitting down with Gabriel Peel from Airbnb, discussing some of the recent changes they have implemented on their applications and their move to Kotlin. Hi, Gabriel. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on. And just before we were, uh, we started the recording, we started the podcast, we were just talking about um, that you are uh, going to be speaking soon at DroidCon New York, right? That is correct. Yeah. What about? So in the for the past two years, I guess mid-early 2016 through the end of 2017, Airbnb made a pretty big investment in React Native and then ultimately decided it wasn't uh, right to continue investing in it. So we, we've been sunsetting it over the past year. But in doing so, we've actually learned a lot and started to transition to Kotlin and build some new things that take advantage of some of the learnings we've had both in React Native and on the Android side to, to build some new tools that we're pretty excited about. Awesome. So basically everything that I want to talk to you about on this show, you're going to be talking about at DroidCon New York. When is that exactly? It is early next week. So it's the August 27th and 28th, I believe. Okay. So that's great. So the premiere will be there and then people will be listening to this afterwards because this is going to come out after that. But um, cool. That's really good. So uh, I, I guess that this is also, um, I'll, I'll, we, we can pretend that I'm your audience, right? <laughs> so when you start to tell me everything, I'll be asking you the 200 questions um, that you probably get right. to talk. Anyway, so yeah, so you were saying, I mean, and, and the reason that I pinged you, as you said, uh, because some time ago, you wrote a blog post regarding this exact topic that you're mentioning, right? That Airbnb had invested in React Native and you were moving off of that. And of course, you know, when these kind of blog posts come out, you get the you get the two camps, right? The ones that are, oh, you're doing it wrong and, and this is, you're completely wrong. And then the other ones are like, oh, I told you so. And, you know, you shouldn't have done this, right? Um, I guess that the the feedback was all over the place with that post, no? Yeah, and and honestly, that was one of my biggest concerns while writing it. It actually took me about four months and multiple complete revisions of the draft to make sure that the message really uh, covered both sides as accurately as I could. Uh, it is one of those issues where I think no matter what, it's just simply a very polarizing topic. And no matter if there's any angle, people will find what they're looking for and they will run with it or they'll use it to confirm whatever they want it to confirm. And so with these things, when you're dealing with cross-platform, uh, any of the cross-platform frameworks, you really have to make sure that you are fair to both sides because otherwise you wind up just giving people ammo or confirmation bias. Yeah, but it's like that, as you say, with any kind of topic. And and the other thing that I I always find, you know, a little bit sad at times that we can't share our experiences without the fear of being, you know, frowned upon or or attacked or or you know all kinds of different angles that people take when we we try and express our experiences, right? And why can't I, I think? Well, I think actually in this case, it's not so much the direct retaliation or response to a particular post. It's more that 
I believe that there's a lot of really incredible work being done in the space, and a lot of really smart people are are putting a lot of time and effort into making cross-platform a really good experience. And I don't think that it's inherently flawed. I think it's just a really hard problem. And I think if you present too damning of a picture of the situation, you can end up doing more harm than good by stunting development and making people hesitant to even try to move into that space. When I think that given the, enough investment, I think really amazing things can come out of it. Yeah. And, and in fact, are coming out of it. Yeah. And and we'll get into the details of uh, why exactly you abandoned it. But uh, so you said that you you started with this like two years ago, right? Doing React Native. Yeah, it was early 2016. So much earlier days of React Native. Right. And so and you were doing this for what, for two years? And then at some point you just decided to just throw in the towel? Yeah, so it really, it kind of came to a T towards uh, around November of last year, where we really took a look at the landscape within Airbnb and thought about what it would look like for React Native to be successful and what it would take to get there. And uh, although the, the entire calculus was very, very complicated, and I'm very hesitant to try to simplify it down to a single reason or a single decision, but ultimately we just didn't see a clear path for it to be successful, and successful being wrapping up the amount of investment, what we're getting out of it, uh, and, and varying opinions inside of Airbnb. Well, I mean, I was going to ask, what do you exactly do you mean by success? Because I mean, if if we're going to look at you are shipping the application for two platforms, you were sharing code. Was it that the, the effort that you were having to put into this was just not worth it? So, yeah, again, I, I'm pretty hesitant to try to simplify it down to just a few reasons or even one reason. It's simply impossible. But ultimately, you have to sort of balance the amount of effort you're putting in, the value you're getting out, and also the opportunity cost of the effort that you're putting in. And so in this situation, it's not that it wasn't working or we weren't getting any value out of it, but there were some serious opportunity costs to maintaining it, both in terms of uh, like our infrastructural resourcing on mobile in particular, where we were spread pretty thin trying to build everything for three platforms. Uh, whereas if we took the same people and had them invest in two platforms, we, we could build a much stronger foundation. So that that's one of many, many reasons. But uh, the opportunity cost one is hard. It's something that uh, it's, it's hard to really get a full understanding of without the context of being inside the company and looking at what it looks like. How many developers, if I may ask, were on the mobile side? So on the infrastructure side, we had two engineers on each platform, two Android, two iOS, two React Native. And on the product side, we had about, at that point, roughly 50 people on in a given month contributing to each platform, Android and iOS, and then 8 to 15, depending on the month, uh, for React Native. So that's one of the big, uh, I would say, misconceptions about our usage of React Native was that we were 100% React Native. Um, and, and that now we're moving to native, then uh, when in fact we've always done native, we never stopped. We just uh, augmented it with an additional capacity of React Native. So a lot of the teams that were using React Native may not have been able to ship anything at all had it not been for React Native. So uh, it's even looking at what you know the uh, that fifteen percent. It's not. Uh, it didn't take away from mobile. It actually added to it. So we we're at one hundred and fifteen percent capacity. Okay. And then, so you decided to basically 
stop i mean you you're saying that you were you know you doing native development so i'm assuming that this was uh was it kotlin at the time or java on android so it's sort of funny we actually started our first kotlin pilot back in 2015 it was definitely uh, definitely pre 1.0 but a bunch of us were really really excited about kotlin back then and so we did a pilot where we rewrote a feature in kotlin and it was great uh, we I mean, we loved it. It was it I think about forty plus percent fewer lines of code, and it was just uh, it was a really good experience. But uh, we started to track the build times, and the lack of an incremental compiler back then was unfortunately a deal breaker. Uh, but I'm glad we caught that one early. That would have been uh, a big problem had we not stopped that one early. Uh, but then uh, shortly after that, we switched from Gradle to Buck for our local development builds. And uh, for a long time, Buck didn't have very good Kotlin support. So we were kind of hamstrung a little bit and were held back on Java because of Buck. But uh, last year, it started to get much, much better Kotlin support. So once the tooling enabled us to use it again, uh, we we started to really move forward and, and we're in a much, much better spot now with Kotlin. That's interesting because, I mean, I don't know. I mean, if I look at it from my perspective, if I were to use a, you know, decide on a technology that I'm going to use, technology being in this case, let's just talk, talk about languages, would I value or put more weight on the language versus the build tool? Now, you said that, yeah, the build times weren't great. Am I, assuming that the build times were good, would you have still like said, okay, well, we because we're using Buck and Buck doesn't really support Kotlin, we're going to just revert back to Java. Like, do you, do you see what I'm asking you? Like, do, yeah. would you put more emphasis on the build tool than the language that you would be using? So I, th I think it really depends. And uh, in, in our case, Gradle was just becoming entirely unmaintainable, where I think at this rate, if we were trying to continue to use Gradle uh, right, right now, our incremental builds would be probably, you know, in the order of minutes, maybe. Who knows? I don't even know, to be honest, because we don't do development with Gradle anymore. But uh, our incremental builds with Buck today are on the order of full, like, compile to install and run on the device are on the order of 10 to 15 seconds in many cases. And uh, that's actually not, still not even possible with Gradle. Um, and a big factor there is actually Exo Package, which is a Buck feature that allows you to uh, basically just hot swap modules uh, or like DEXs on the device that, in a very reliable way so that you don't have to reinstall the entire APK on every install. So it's hard to say. It's hard to balance Buck versus Gradle because you also have to make the decision kind of at the beginning before you really understand the full impl implications of both. So I don't know. I think it's kind of impossible to know what the trade-off would be, but in this particular particular situation, I think moving to Buck was a good decision for us and has really helped us. And now we have Kotlin. So we're in a world where we have both. So that's kind of nice. Right. So then you, and then in 2015, you were doing Kotlin and then you kind of stopped it. And then when did you pick it up again? When you basically dropped uh, or dropped or stopped putting so much effort into React? Or was it earlier? I would say that the, those two decisions were completely unrelated. But the timing was almost exactly aligned for completely coincidentally. So I actually, we've been tracking the number of lines of Java and Kotlin in our app uh, every week uh, since last the end of, since the beginning of last November. 
which is again coincidentally when we started we decided to sunset react native but not actually related so last november i'm looking at the numbers now we had a uh, by lock which is a command line tool that counts actual like meaningful lines of code we had 401,000 lines of java and 800 lines of kotlin so and it was at zero not too long before that so again 401 to 800 uh, and today we're at 428,000 so it's gone up about five percent uh, but we have 64,000 lines of kotlin wow that's uh, increased if, quite a bit yeah exactly so actually in the last month if we just look at the last month here we've <laughs> we actually we've written 14,000 lines of Kotlin in the last month and negative 3,000 lines of Java. So so every day a little bit more. The tide has swung. Yeah. Yes. And and let, let's just say for the sake of argument, which is kind of true, that the the lines of code of what you can get with Kotlin, you let, you need less lines of code than, than Java. So, you know, you, you can't do a line by line comparison number there. Uh, but that, that's a really good point. Yeah. And we, we've seen 40 to 60% fewer lines of code for the same features. In Kotlin, yeah, I mean, forty percent is more or less the average that we we've always spoken about. I mean, in some of the measurements that we made, so that's uh, about right. Cool, and uh, and at the same time, you've been basically doing the development using uh, Swift on the iOS side, right? Yeah, so Airbnb was a very early adopter of Swift, for better and for worse. But at this point, um, the the Swift tooling and language has matured quite a bit, and they're they've been really on the bleeding edge of that curve on Swift. So I, I forget the numbers, but it's something like 90% of their app is Swift now. Yeah, I, I kind of, you know, I mean, we do we do um, tools for Swift, and uh, which is our ID app code, right? And a lot of times speaking to a team, they do sometimes get quite frustrated by how, let's just say that breaking changes in a way to, to to the language, right? Is that is that accurate? I mean, is that more or less right that, that there are quite a bit? Yeah, on the Swift side, I I think it's a bit better now than it used to be, but they've definitely had some extremely painful Swift upgrades, especially working on a code base of, of their size with, again, 75 engineers contributing to it. You can't just quickly refactor a syntax change or, or something like that across the entire code base. It really takes a ton of work. So I guess thank you and to the whole Kotlin team for making that a non-issue, at least so far on, on our side. We yeah. really, we've had absolutely zero issues of that sort with yeah. our Kotlin migration. Let's touch wood, you know, let's, let's not jinx it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but thank you so far. Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll make sure I pass it on to the team. Uh, yeah. So, and in terms of Kotlin, now getting into the specifics of what exactly you've been doing, because I, I, I was looking through your blog posts and there were some interesting things that you were uh, doing with Kotlin other than just using it as a language, right? So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so, so one of our favorite things about the Kotlin language is that it basically gives you a bigger toolbox to work with. Right. Java is a fairly Java 7 in particular is a pretty constrained language in terms of the number of features you get. And with great power comes great responsibility to make sure that you don't you can you can make things too clever and too expressive, but uh, you can certainly use them to your advantage. So I get, I've been here about for about three years and we have a number of engineers who've sort of seen a lot of features get built over the years. And over time you start to notice patterns things like 
the fact that you're dealing with the Android lifecycle over and over and over again, kind of in the same ways where you do like you inflate your layout in one place and then you set up your views in one place and then you destroy them in another place and you save your state in another place. And then we found a lot of our screens were kind of followed a similar pattern as well. They could generally be defined with a toolbar, a vertical list of components, and a footer, an optional footer. And if you, if you look at most apps, it's it's amazing how many apps conform to this paradigm. So we decided we wanted to take some of these things that people were doing over and over again, and we wanted to wrap them up in a nice box such that they could focus directly on building products. So it, it started kind of simply, right? We, you know, we'd used one thing for one thing and one thing for another. So we started to use view models to help abstract away some of the rotation configuration change problems. And then we, we made some API improvements on top of that. To, so instead of subscribing to multiple individual live datas or observables, you, you kind of had one state object that, uh, that, the, that the view model owned. And then we provided a base fragment that had a, uh, a layout that had the toolbar and the list of components and the footer built in, paired with Epoxy, which is a framework that uh, lets you build new models for recycler views really easy and build these like heterogeneous recycler views uh, without worrying about like view holders, binding your views, anything like that, uh, and a number of other things. And all of a sudden, we started to like build all these individual little pieces and realized that they added up to a package that was that just dramatically changed Android development for the better on our side. Uh, in fact, so we wound up with this framework. Now we call it Mavericks. Um, it's MVRX, kind of model view, RxJava e. Although it doesn't actually expose much RxJava, but um, we built this framework and we've been using it internally. Uh, and over the past, I'd say three months, uh, it's basically been adopted by every team, including every team that was on React Native and is now moving off. Um, they've built about 106, by my last count, brand new screens with this framework. And out of the 14 engineers who've been working on this, 93% uh, of them gave an 8 out of 10 or higher, and one person gave it a 7. So uh, we're pretty excited about it. That's very cool. But this is, I mean, and, and forgive me that my Android uh, knowledge is non-existent to, to, to put it lightly, but some of the, th I mean, looking through the blog post that you, you have, I see some kind of layouts and stuff. I mean, you've got these build models and the headers and IDs and input rows and stuff. So this is similar to one of the things that we had, uh, which was the, uh, you know, part of the Kotlin extensions. Uh, I've even forgotten the name of it. Oh my God. I can't remember the name of the, the our, our own thing. What we made. Um, do, do you remember the name of it? Was it the HTML one? No, not the HTML one. The the one for Kotlin. The one for Anko. Anko, yes. Yeah. So is this anywhere in line with Anko or or not? So it only is similar to Anko or is it Anko? I think Anko. Anko. Yeah. Good to know. And uh, it's similar in that it uses the Kotlin syntax to enable you to build a DSL. It is different in that. So this that this actual syntax that you see in the build models function, and I think it's part five of the blog post, um, and we'll be releasing this soon, so you'll see more in more details. So this is actually Epoxy. Epoxy is a library that we have open sourced a while ago, but built some Kotlin extensions for. 
And what it basically is, is each one of those is a, a view model that gets auto-generated. So taking a step back, you let's say you have a recycler view and you, you want a list of views in your recycler view. Um, in particular, if you have a heterogeneous recycler view with a lot of different kinds of views in it, it's tr there's traditionally a ton of boilerplate where you have to create a view holder for each one, and then you have your uh, you have your on your item view type in your adapter where you have to like figure out the index and map it to a type, and then you have to create the view holder, and then you have to bind it. Uh, you, it's it's basically you're just like wiring up data to yeah. a view. It, and all of that is simply boilerplate. Yeah. Um, so epoxy basically takes all that boilerplate away. So if you build a custom view and you annotate it with model view, which is uh, an annotation that's part of the epoxy library, you then have some setter functions on it, like set title, set subtitle, set click listener. Then you can annotate those functions with text prop, or model prop, callback prop. These, are, again, are part of epoxy. It will automatically generate a special uh, uh, view view model or epoxy model specifically for that view, and that epoxy model also has an epoxy recycler view or epoxy sorry recycler view view holder, a view holder layout, all the binding and everything automatically, and it just gives you a nice little clean, almost DSL like syntax for the view. So if you make a, a row or a view like basic row, then you annotate it. Then in Kotlin, you can just do basic row, open curly bracket, title, parentheses, subtitle, parentheses, click listener, lambda. Uh, and then what it'll actually do behind the scenes is automatically bind that to a uh, view holder. But before doing that, it actually does a full diff of, of it. Uh, and then kind of like diff helper, that comes with the recycler view. And then it only dispatches the things that actually changed to the recycler view itself. So... When you look at it, it's actually a very similar pattern to React, where you have this list of components, you build a component, then in re render, you return a list of components, then the React reconciler takes that list of components, calculates a diff, and dispatches it to the DOM. Yeah. Epoxy is the same way. It gets a list of epoxy models, generates a diff, and dispatches recycler view diff commands to a recycler view. So similar model, but it's been extraordinarily effective for us. In fact, I would, I would, I can't think of a single screen in the entire app anymore that doesn't use it as a pattern. How do you do this on the on the Swift side with uh, iOS? Do you have like a similar thing? We do. It's it's not open source, but we it's a similar pattern because the the pattern has been so effective for us in Android that they've built their own version of Epoxy on iOS. It's the syntax is modified for Swift. And for the way that views work on uh, on iOS, but they do have something similar. You know that we're attempting. Well, we're working on the the whole multi-platform support for Kotlin. Have you tried to investigate this path or see if it's viable to do this using uh, Kotlin on both platforms? So the short answer is no. The medium answer is that we're really interested in Kotlin multi-platform, and the longer answer is that. We're still moving off of React Native, and Kotlin multi-platform is still uh, very exciting, but in its early days. So we are sort of holding off a little bit until we fully get React Native out of the code base and wait for Kotlin multi-platform to mature a bit. But we certainly have looked into it and talked about it, and, and we're intrigued, but I don't think we're quite ready to jump on Kotlin multi-platform yet. And 
Complete, completely understandable. So one of the things that I do want to ask you is you, I mean, you say, you know, we want to get rid of React Native, right? And I'm guessing that it's not only getting rid of all of the React Native code, but letting the experience or the, you know, whatever you want to call it, the bad experience or the experience of React Native also fade away. Yeah. Would that be fair to say? I mean, in the sense that, you know, you've, you've tried this multi-platform approach and it didn't quite work out well for you. Oh, in terms of sentiment? Yeah, in terms of sentiment. Yes. Yeah, I, I would say so. And, and, and I think that, you know, people here, there were a lot of, again, it's a very polarizing topic. So there were people on all sides of it here. But I, I would say it was, it's been handled in, in a pretty good manner. And so there's not much more bad blood. Um, and I think even some of the people who are fairly wary of React Native are bullish on the potential of Kotlin multi-platform. So we'll see where that goes. But. Yeah, and I, again, it's not a question of bad blood or anything. It's just you've tried it. This was your experience. Whatever people say, however polarized they are, at the end of the day, you decided to move on. Good for you. Great. It's fine. Well, what I'm trying to get at is are you now in a sense – and I'm not saying you in particular, but as a team, are you reluctant in a way now to go for any other kind of multi-platform promise as such? I I think that it's like any decision, like you'd have to take look at it with just a full set of pros and cons. I don't think that we would inherently be opposed to looking at a cross-platform or multi-platform approach. But I think temporarily it has to happen after we fully move away from React Native. And then I think that there's an opportunity there to reinvestigate what that landscape looks like. So I, I, don't, I wouldn't say we, are, we would be inherently opposed to doing it again. And do you have any recommendations for the Kotlin team on, on things that they should avoid and the pain points that you've suffered or things that they should you know, not try and do with this approach? It's a good question, and I so one of the one of the large facets of our experience with React Native was that a lot of the challenges were not purely technical; they were actually organizational, and they would apply to any cross-platform framework. And so that's why, actually, in the blog post series, there's an entire blog post that is about organizational challenges that had nothing to do with React Native specifically as a technology. And so some of those come around resourcing and, how, and having teams understand and figure out who they need to build a project. And then you have, uh, once you started to build a team and they build it in either this uh, cross-platform framework or the native frameworks, then what happens if they switch teams or you have another team in the same organization or you have to interact with another team and then you have these multiple different platforms within the app Making sure, figuring out how much overhead is required to jump between them or uh, share a state between them or bridge between them is, is a very important consideration because especially in an app the size of ours, we're not just going to write everything in a cross-platform framework, but many, many things have to be bridged between the two. So you know, figuring out what that interface looks like because it's not going to be like two silos within the app. It'll be a much more hybrid approach where one screen will be one, one screen will be another, one part of one screen will be one, one part of another screen will be another, or this, the UI will be in one and the infrastructure will be in the other. So making that interface as seamless as possible is really crucial for it to work in a large app. I see. And then from the 
technical perspective in terms of, I mean, you you said that you know the majority of the issue for you is organizational, but were there any challenges in on the technical side? I mean, so for instance, you know, one of the things again, I don't do much mobile, but what people normally say is, or or let me rephrase a question for you. When you have two mobile applications that you are that you're developing for the two platforms, right? Where is the majority of the code concentrated in? In terms of infrastructure versus product? I mean, well, let's define what you mean here by infrastructure. Infrastructure would be things like our networking stack, experimentation pipeline. Um, uh, okay, yeah, infrastructure helpers, code. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, infrastructure code. Right. So how much of it would be infrastructure code that uh, in your application, for instance? That is a good question, and I don't. I honestly don't have an exact number on, on Android. I would say it's probably in the ballpark of fifteen percent of the code. Okay, Ball, ballpark. It's again, it could be off. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, we'll we'll say fifteen percent. So now leaves eighty five percent, right? Which is it's it's your core application, like the product itself, as you call it. Now in that product, if you were to say, right, I've got the iOS version, I've got the Android version. What is the grunt of the, where is the grunt of the code? I mean, in terms of, I, you see, I don't know how, how you were doing the code sharing in React, but the UI is different. You were sharing it and it was rendering down to the different UI elements on each platform, right? But the UI code you were defining once? Correct. So is it, are you worried, quite asking about the React Native? Uh, yeah, on the React Native side. Ah, okay. Actually, I, I know the numbers better on the React Native side. I think we had about uh, 80,000 lines of infra infrastructure, about 200,000 lines of product. So the infrastructure ratio is a bit higher on the React Native side because uh, we had to build a lot of things ourselves. But um, actually, so one of the interesting things that one of the big takeaways we had when we looked at the state of React Native at the end of our time with it is that actually from a product perspective, the cross-platform aspect of React Native absolutely worked beautifully. Uh, that's it wasn't. That's not to say it was 100% perfect, but as far as actual code sharing, we had about 95% shared code between Android and iOS, uh, and only it was something like 5% of files had any sort of platform differential at all. And then in the entire code base of about a thousand files or 1,100 files, there was only one star.android.ios or star.ios.js file. So we really, really, truly on the product side reached uh, a pretty, a, a number of, uh, a percentage of code share that we were very satisfied with. Um, that being said, it kind of worked because we have this thing called the design language system here at Airbnb, which is a set of components that are designed to both look like the Airbnb brand, but also feel at home on each platform. And so they were built once, and inside of them there were minor differences, like like a disclosure arrow may have been on iOS, but not on Android because it doesn't adhere to the platform guidelines. Um, and then we also built some native things for screens and toolbars. So we would use the native toolbar on Android and the native UI navigation bar on iOS but that was part of the infrastructure code for a screen that was built once, such that if a product engineer just built a screen, they would get all of those things for free. 
And in fact, if you actually look at a React Native screen on Android and iOS, they will feel native on each platform. And you may not even be able to tell that it was React Native instead of native. But from the that was all done on the infrastructure side so that the product properly ditched our code between the two platforms. So you say it's fair to say that you were sharing knowledge, you were sharing code, you were sharing similar experiences on, on both platforms, right? I mean, Absolutely, would, yes. Yeah. So then I'm just, I don't know, maybe I'm failing to understand then where was the organizational problem? I mean, when you were talking about someone leaving a, a, a project and then, uh, you know, moving on to something else, if everyone was more or less on the same page and sharing the same knowledge, because like one of the promises of 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 all of this single platform, sorry, single language framework, whatever you want to call it, approach to multiple platforms is is precisely that, right? That you're sharing the same knowledge, the same frameworks, the same libraries, the same constructs, and you can work across multiple platforms. Well, it, but the thing, it was basically 100% shared within 15% of the code base. So okay, the problem, yeah, if you're within a 100% React Native team, it's very easy going between the two platforms. But uh, But those teams only constituted about 15% of all of our mobile engineering. And so making that interface work well is where you started to have issues. Or if you have you know, engineers, uh, one team that had React Native engineers, and they switch teams, and then you have new engineers join the team who only know Android or iOS, then you have a situation where they're now inheriting a code base that's completely unfamiliar. Or maybe you want two products to integrate well together, and all of a sudden, one has their state on in Android land, and another has its state in Redux land, and they don't know how to simply just like pass some props or pass some information or share some state between one screen and another because they're built in two completely different frameworks. Yeah, and right now as it stands, you're gonna have the same situation with Kotlin, right? Because while Kotlin will allow you to share common code, be it infrastructure, be it business logic or what have you, you still need developers that are Android developers and developers that are iOS developers, right? You're not gonna get around that right now. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, it looks like we're running out of time. So thanks once again, Gabriel, for coming on the show. And hopefully we can chat or meet at some point soon. Thank you. And uh, I hope, you know, I'm sure we'll cross paths in person and we'll, we'll actually get to properly meet. Mm -hmm.